0: Sun. You can hear their hearts beating loud. Can't keep those California Indians down. Good evening, everyone. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves Cowdy Radio. For Marcus Lopez, I'm your host for the hour, Larry Smith. On tonight's show, a one-hour exclusive special, on 25 years later, the National Liberation Zapatista Army, the EZLN's colonial refusal and resistance in Chiapas, Mexico. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves, County Radio. You can hear when the moon shines bright, the lone Kani blows to the bahu drum, it's the warriors who are marching mm-hmm, down the mountain, mm-hmm, because history ain't no mystery to me. January 1st of 1994 marks the date that indigenous peoples of the National Liberation Zapatista Army or the EZLN, declared their autonomy from the colonial state of Mexico in what is often referred to as the Chiapas Uprising. Concurrent to the Declaration of Autonomy was the formal declaration in opposition of the North American Free Trade Agreement. 25 years later, January 1st of 2019, we look at the National Liberation Zapatista Army's Colonial Refusal and Resistance in Chiapas with longtime academic scholar and activist Richard Stoller Schulk, who's professor of political science at Eastern Michigan University. He joins us exclusively for the hour to talk about the reflections, the change, and the progress of the EZLN's Decolonial Struggles and Practices in the Chiapas-Mexico Regions. And now, Richard Stoller Schulk, 25 years later, the EZLN's Colonial Refusal and Resistance in Chiapas. January 1st of 2019 marks the 25th anniversary of the EZLN and what is commonly referred to as as the Chiapas Uprising, which occurred on the same day that the North American Free Trade Agreement went into effect. And here we are 25 years later. Your thoughts and comments about the significance of this time?
1: Well, the, um, the Zapatistas don't think in terms of electoral calendars or short-term calendars. They have a much longer-term view of things, the indigenous peoples of Mexico, and especially um, in this specific instance of uh, primarily Maya people of southern Mexico. Um, so the uprising, for instance, that began on the day that NAFTA took effect, January 1st, 1994, uh, was one more marking point in 500 years of oppression uh, uh, displacement, exploitation of indigenous peoples. The Zapatistas themselves, the the rebellion that went public on January 1st of 94, had been organizing clandestinely for a good 10 years before that. Um, So there's sort of different ways of thinking about the the marking of time. Um, But in the contemporary era, NAFTA really symbolized neoliberal capitalism, the global phase of uh, capitalism that uh, allows global corporations, the largest um, wealthiest entities, to ignore um, international boundaries and to operate as though the world is their oyster. Naturally, people aren't allowed to ignore borders, as we're uh, very painfully discovering with the uh, tear gassing and and other cruel treatment of uh, people trying to cross the uh, U.S.-Mexican border. Um, So these are important markers of time, but markers within a larger historical process.
0: Rich, in terms of decolonial practices and the assertion of autonomy, Over the past several generations, uh, experiences by indigenous peoples in Chiapas, Mexico, what have been some of the successes, some of the pitfalls, and what are some of the things that are still unfolding and being worked out? Uh Uh-huh.
1: Well, the, the Zapatista uprising of January 1, ninety four, was definitely a, a wake-up call, the cry of, "Yavasta, yeah, we've had enough. Um, and it was a wake-up call around the world. It has resonated for many people, uh, particularly for indigenous people. So one of the uh, long-term consequences of that uprising was the sort of awakening of consciousness Um, Indigenous peoples and Afro-descendant peoples in the Americas uh, also had a a kind of moment of uh, historical memory in 1992 – on the 500th anniversary of Columbus's invasion and plunder of of the Americas, uh, when networks began to form across the entire uh, region to resist the kind of celebration of the great encounter of civilizations as it was presented by the hegemonic powers and by Spain. Um, So two years after that, the Zapatistas rise up uh, publicly, uh, and one of the consequences of their uprising has been uh, the um, kind of Um, uh, stimulation of indigenous organizing and indigenous consciousness um, in uh, Mexico and and other parts of the world. So for instance, a National Indigenous Congress, the CNI, uh, formed among the 60 plus indigenous groups within the nations within uh, the territory of of Mexico, uh, in very large part because of the inspiration of the Zapatista uprising. Um, And In recent years, the CNI uh, has been uh, increasingly coordinating their activities with the Zapatista uprising, including um, in the presidential uh, election campaign in in Mexico um, just last year. Uh, The the CNI and the EZLN, the Zapatistas, uh, announced that they were going to uh, create a a process of consultations in indigenous communities around the country and choose an indigenous woman to be a candidate, a symbolic candidate candidate for the presidency of the country, not to win the presidency because the says and the, the CNI realize that the political system is thoroughly corrupted, but to use it as an organizing tool. And so uh, a Nawa woman um, from the state of Jalisco was chosen, uh, Maria de Jesus Patricio uh, Martinez, um, uh, Marichui, as she's more uh, colloquially known. And so that was another important moment, an important sort of Um, uh, symbolic coming together of indigenous people around a common uh, cause and and symbol. Um, Along the way, after the Zapatista uprising of 94, uh, the uh, Mexican government was forced to negotiate with the Zapatistas, and they were forced by a civil society uprising, really, because when the government tried to crush the Zapatista rebellion by military force, People all across uh, the, the country, all across Mexico, indigenous and non-indigenous alike, rose up and had massive demonstrations in Mexico City saying, you have to, you know, at least listen to what they're saying. Um, <laughs> So those negotiations resulted in the signing of the San Andres Accords in 1996 for indigenous rights and culture, um, where the government, you know, at least on paper, recognized the rights of indigenous people uh, to self-governance and preservation of their cultures and traditions in their territory. Now, As we know from the U.S. and elsewhere, uh, governments often (laughs) sign treaties with native peoples and then uh, do something very different from what's on paper, and that was the case here. Um, So the Zapatistas continued to mobilize. They didn't wait for permission. They didn't wait for the government to keep its word because it had long experience of 500 years of that not happening. Um, So they continued to implement their autonomy project in the uh, territories, the indigenous communities of Chiapas. And, And so by... Um, implementing a de facto autonomy, uh, they have really um, created power from below rather than fixating on power coming from governmental entities from above. So that's, I think, the real strength and vibrancy of the zapatista movement has been what they're able to accomplish at the grassroots through alternative everyday practices in the communities that uh, they consider to be autonomous. Um, and so that's really the essence of the movement rather than a particular leader or figure or moment in in history, it's that process, that participatory process of Indigenous people taking power for themselves in their everyday lives.
0: Now, has there been any um, pitfalls, if you will, in in this process of not just survivance, but in the establishment of autonomy and uh, the attempts at decolonization?
1: Sure. Um, well, uh, you know, from the point of view of uh, relations with the, the Mexican state, I mean, even when a ceasefire was signed after twelve days after the uh, Zapatista uprising, the uh, the government violated its own ceasefire and sent in the military and military operations, and has continued with counterinsurgency operations. So one of the um, characteristics of the counterinsurgency by the Mexican state is that rather than a sort of frontal confrontation with the Zapatistas or the indigenous communities, they try to sow divisions or exploit divisions, um, and so that's again, you know, kind of a long tradition of governments in their dealings with indigenous peoples, uh, and that's been a, a challenge and a struggle for the, uh, the the Zapatistas to not fall into that trap, and they haven't. Uh, they've remained firm and clear about their uh, convictions and have not uh, you know, criticize other groups that haven't joined the movement or haven't come along, but rather they've kind of stayed focused on building their own uh, autonomy. So that's been one of the, uh, the challenges. Um, the distraction of electoral politics has been another challenge, and there are always groups that call themselves uh, leftists who are uh, trying to uh, uh, criticize the Zapatistas for not entering into the party electoral game. And again, the Zapatistas have been very clear. If others want to play that game, You know, that's their business, but the Sanfetistas are not interested in that conventional concept of power, but rather are going to focus on empowerment, taking power through the practice of kind of liberation at the uh, community and and grassroots level. Uh, So that's another um, kind of challenge Um, in the contemporary era of global capitalism um, in uh, the really since the 1980s in uh, Mexico the government has been opening up the country to global corporations and removing any kind of state interventions restrictions regulation privatizing and so forth and giving the corporations free reign and very often that has meant uh, stripping indigenous people of rights and territory and um, and control of, of those uh, territories this is not just in Chiapas um But all over Mexico and all over Latin America, indigenous people are in clashes against these global corporations where uh it 's sort of a um where the government is intervening on behalf of the corporations rather than protecting the uh, the communities so that 's been another challenge as well that the Zapatistas have had to um not only cling to their own territorial control in the areas of of autonomy and autonomous government, uh, but also sort of be an example and an inspiration for other indigenous peoples fighting for their rights.
0: Rich, you've been talking about indigenous peoples' interactions and experiences with the uh, colonial nation-state, the government of Mexico, but what about in a global context? What kind of experiences and assertion of autonomy by indigenous peoples have we witnessed over these past couple of generations?
1: Sure. There are many ways that that happens. There have been uh, gatherings of indigenous people, like I mentioned before, on the 500th anniversary of the European invasion uh, of the Americas. So that was one uh, moment when indigenous people um, uh, sort of ignored the boundaries defined by states and and came together as peoples. Um, The formation of the National Indigenous Congress um, in Mexico itself and their relations with other indigenous people is another uh, example of that. Um, And then at the international level, there has come to be, in in recent decades, more international legal and moral recognition of the rights of indigenous people. So one, uh, a couple of key documents in that global struggle have been Convention 169 of the International Labor Organization, uh, which indigenous people all over the world uh, fought to uh, have that included and have that recognized by governments. And what that says is that indigenous people have a right to um, their historic and traditional territories and to recognition of their autonomy in those territories. Um, And so that's an internationally recognized right and that was ratified again um, in in 2007 in the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples of the United Nations. So those are a few examples of how uh, seemingly scattered and localized struggles of Indigenous peoples are sort of coalescing into global consciousness uh, of a, Of a global movement that transcends the level of particular states.
0: You're listening to an exclusive one hour interview with Richard Stoller Schulk, professor of political science at Eastern Michigan University, on 25 years later the National Liberation Zapatista Army, the EZLN's colonial refusal and resistance in Chiapas, Mexico. And now back to the interview. Rich, the last time we spoke, Andreas Manuel López Obrador, AMLO, of the National Regeneration Movement, was running for the president. Uh, obviously, he's the new president now, and the new Mexican Chamber of Deputies just passed their first budget. And this first budget is uh, provides all kinds of tax credits to the wealthy throughout the state of Mexico. In fact, the top 10% of Mexicans uh, control about 70% of the country's wealth. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, AMLO, the new budget, him supposedly being a progressive and leftist, and the response by the EZLN and the National Indigenous Congress.
1: Sure. This election was... Uh, hailed by the supporters of AMLO as something like the second coming. In fact, they called it the fourth transformation of Mexico, referring historically to independence from Spain, the liberal reforms of the 1800s. Um, uh, you know, and uh, putting it on the same plane on the Mexican Revolution and uh, 1910, and this is supposedly the fourth transformation of Mexico. So against that sort of grandiose rhetoric of some great transformation, uh, I would say, and the, the uh, that I would ag- agree with the, the Zapatista analysis, that really the, this is continuity rather than some uh, great dramatic change. That we can't be fixated on the six-year presidential terms of Mexican presidents, but we have to look at the the longer term. Term and the larger structural uh, issues of global capitalism. So when um, Amlo uh, came into office in uh, de- uh, just uh, in December just now, um, he had himself sworn in in a, uh, a ceremony in which he made use of indigenous symbols, uh, uh, incense, and uh, handing over of the, the staff of command, a, a literal um, a walking stick, uh, symbolic of, of authority. So um, uh, many critics, uh, Zapatistas included, said that he has been making very you know, sort of fake use of um, indigenous customs and symbols. And even in the transition, it was You know, although it was hailed as some dramatic breakaway from the the tradition of the Institutional Revolutionary Party, the PRI, that had governed Mexico for most of the last century. uh, But the, the outgoing president, Peña Nieto, in his lame duck session, you know, signed a bunch of mining concessions that would have a devastating effect on indigenous communities and the incoming President AMLO named as his chief of cabinet uh, someone uh, who has said he's going to turn Mexico into an investor's paradise Uh, of course the investor's paradise would be an indigenous people's nightmare Uh, and we already see in one specific project that AMLO has been heavily backing it's sort of uh, kind of like the equivalent of Trump's wall Uh, AMLO has made one of his signature projects the Mayan train Uh, he wants to put a, um, a, a tourist Uh, train 1,500 kilometers long uh, between the Mayan uh, sites in the Yucatan Peninsula and uh, Palenque in the state of Chiapas in uh, southeast Mexico. Um, And uh, in the sort of hoopla around this great mega-project, I mean, he uh, uh, Amlo had what the Zapatistas called a fake ritual in Palenque, uh, where again, he's co-opting indigenous symbols and pretending to ask Mother Earth's permission uh, to run this tourist train. But he, what he didn't ask was the permission of all the real life indigenous people who are living on Mother Earth in that 1500 kilometer stretch. Um, and uh, so uh, there's really a uh, just a, a huge night and day difference between um, the the showy symbolism of this inauguration and the reality of the devastating effect that global capitalism is having on indigenous communities and indigenous peoples, uh, not only in Chiapas, but really throughout the Americas.
0: Rich, when we talk about this $6 billion, 932-mile Mayan train project running from Cancun to Polenque and Chiapas, this mammoth development project that will support ecotourism and the tourism industry and have all kinds of cultural implications for indigenous peoples as well as environmental implications. I was wondering if you can talk about the greater dynamics of this mammoth six billion dollar train project and also not all indigenous peoples are opposed to the Mayan train project. Your thoughts on that?
1: Right. So when AMLO had his uh, fake ceremony in, in Palenque, he rounded up some indigenous people from the state of Chiapas who were in support of the project and of, of AMLO. So there are always people who will be on various sides of issues. And um, to be fair, it's going to generate potentially some revenues, at least in the short term, for some people. And, you know, if, um, especially some of those intermediaries who might be able to skim off some of those resources, they might have some direct economic interest. Um, that would be served by the the project, uh, so Amlo is you know de, uh, exploiting divisions in, in indigenous communities, but if he wanted to really find out what the consensus view is of the communities, uh, that would require a process, and in fact, a process that is mandated under international law under the Declaration of the rights of Indigenous people and the convention one hundred and sixty nine that I mentioned before of uh, securing what's called free, prior, and informed consent of the communities. Uh, So that means, uh, you know, not just having a little fake ceremony and rounding up a few co-opted people, but it means, you know, a really serious kind of process of consultation that would be directed by the indigenous peoples themselves, and that's what's not happening. Um, So uh, when the Zapatistas issued their uh, 1st of January statement on the 25th anniversary of their uh, uprising, they made specific reference to Amlo and his ceremony in Palenque, and they said, um, you know, you're claiming to ask permission of Mother Earth, but if Mother Earth could speak, uh, she would say, and uh, and then they use a very vulgar phrase to, <laughs> um, uh, to imagine what Mother Earth might have to say to uh, to AMLO. Um, so the, the Zapatista position is that AMLO is not a savior, uh, that in fact there is no savior, that it's only, as they put it, the people who struggle and organize who are going to be the you know, positive future. Uh, for Mexico and, and, for that matter, for the world. I mean, we are at a point now where uh, we may be destroying our own planet through our uh, collective uh, greed and um, and willful ignorance of uh, climate change.
0: Rich, AMLO was on National Mexican Television on January 2nd or yesterday for some of our listeners of 2019. Uh, speaking directly to to the EZLN leadership saying that, you know, they want uh, peace and conciliatory uh, dialogue with uh, members of uh, the indigenous communities. Your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I think we have to look at the historical context. So even during the election campaign, which AMLO won by a landslide, uh, this recent uh, election, it, it may be that the pre decided to uh, to, <laughs> to take a fall uh, on this one. Uh, but anyway, uh, during the campaign, uh, one of the uh, prominent spokespeople for AMLO and for the Morena uh, movement announced falsely during the campaign, that he had been in dialogue with the Zapatistas. So um, Amlo can imagine a dialogue with the Zapatistas, but it's not happening. And if he really wanted a dialogue, we could go back a few years to the dialogue that went on leading up to the negotiation of the San Andres Accords of 1996 and the uh, Mexican government's commitment to respect indigenous rights and culture. And then the government turned around and stalled on the negotiations, stalled on implementation of the San Andres Accords, and ultimately drew up a draft law, an indigenous law, that totally gutted what they had agreed to in terms of indigenous rights and culture. And that indigenous law was introduced in the Mexican Congress in 2001. And the Zapatistas marched all the way from Chiapas up to Mexico City, and Zapatista Commander Esther made an historic address before the Mexican Congress, an impassioned uh, statement as to Why the government needed to fulfill its agreement uh, on indigenous rights and culture, and the government instead um, voted in favor of this fake indigenous law that betrayed the spirit of the San Andres Accords, mm-hmm. and... Uh, the party of that was then the party of Lopez Obrador, the PRD at the time, uh, supported this uh, betrayal of the San Andres Accords. Uh, so it's all well and good for Amlo now that he's elected to pretend that he wants to have a dialogue or that he is having a dialogue, uh, but history says otherwise.
0: When talking about this $6 billion plus 932 mile uh, Mayan train project, um, uh, can you speak to some of the, um, the cultural and environmental implications of this project? I know environmentalists have expressed concerns about um, uh, virgin forest being clear-cut uh, for purposes of building this road, as well as a substantial uh, amount of jaguar habitat being permanently destroyed. What are the potential implications for uh, indigenous peoples if this project goes through?
1: Sure. There are many different um, cultures uh, and Indigenous nations in the trajectory of the proposed uh, train route. Um, and um, we've already seen with a, a previous proposal of a, a highway construction that was also going to sort of traverse some of that route um, for tourist uh, purposes that Indigenous communities rose up and blocked the highway and uh, and stopped the plans because they were already seeing with just the initial construction of a highway mm-hmm. that it was destroying communities, dividing communities, Um, and if it were to proceed up into the more densely forested and jungled uh, areas, as proposed from Chiapas all the way upward toward the the Yucatan, um, then this would have, uh, again, a devastating effect also on the environment, on the the natural uh, habitat of peoples and uh, other life forms in that region just as uh, Trump's wall, by the way, right. uh, among the many other uh, <laughs> nasty effects, is the uh, devastating environmental effects on um, animals' possibility of migrating in their, their natural patterns. Um, speaking of which, uh, the president-elect of Brazil, the far-right right. yeah. Jair Bolsonaro, uh, who has been referred to as the Tropical Trump, uh, a <laughs> um, uh, right, far-right-wing populist, right. former army captain who said he longs for the day of military. Rule uh, in Brazil. He just got inaugurated as well. Um, and uh, one of his first acts was to turn over uh, the process of certifying indigenous rights to their protected lands, turning that over. And uh, to the Ministry of Agriculture so that agribusiness could uh, you know, destroy the Amazon, destroy the lands of indigenous uh, people, rather than having indigenous people uh, have any kind of input into an indigenous ministry or government agency. So now it's the Ministry of Agriculture that is doing that. So he's rolling back indigenous protections, Amazon uh, uh, protections. So we're seeing a pattern that is not just in uh, Mexico. And Bolsonaro, in doing that, compared the indigenous people of Brazil Brazil uh, in, uh, in their traditional lands in the Amazon region to animals in a zoo. Uh, so we're seeing a pattern here.
0: And that was Richard Stoller Schult, professor of political science at Eastern Michigan University, speaking on 25 years later, the National Liberation Zapatista Army for the EZLN, Colonial Refusal and Resistance in Chiapas, Mexico you're listening to American Indian Airwaves Caudi Radio. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Imno Zapatista, the Zapatista National Anthem, here on American Indian Airwaves, CAUDI Radio. In the final segment of tonight's show, we return back to our featured guest for the hour, Professor Richard Stoller Schulk. He is Professor of Political Science at Eastern Michigan University, and he joins us exclusively on today's program to discuss the 25th anniversary of the National Liberation Zapatista Army's. Colonial Refusal and Resistance in Chiapas, Mexico. It was on January 1st of 1994, the same day that the North American Free Trade Agreement went into effect, that Mayan indigenous peoples of the EZLN declared their autonomy within the Yucatan Peninsula in Chiapas, Mexico. And now back to Professor Richard Stoller Schulk. 25 years later, the EZLN's Colonial Refusal and Resistance in Chiapas, Mexico. Well, in terms of um, or what uh, Cornel West's uh, referred to, uh, we're in a period of global, the rise of a global neo-fascism and, and speaking to um, the tropical Trump and the, the newly elected president of Brazil, and coming back to AMLO and, and uh, the notion of militarization. Um, apparently, with this new budget, um, the Mexican military is receiving its largest funding package in history, apparently 11% increase from the previous administration's 2018 budget. I was wondering if you could speak to that, that notion of a constitutional reform for a new National Guard where, if my understanding is correct, they want to generate approximately 120,000 to 150,000 new National Guard members by 2021. Your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, um I think that this Uh, Tendency toward militarization um, In Mexico and more generally But we'll start with Mexico um, Really is closely related to uh, The uh, So-called security needs of global Capital Uh, After NAFTA was uh, negotiated And uh, went into Effect on the 1st of January 94 The day of the Zapatista uprising The uh, three governments Of uh, Canada The US and and Mexico uh, Then proceeded to uh, negotiate the Merida Initiative, signed in the Yucatan city of, of Merida, uh, for security cooperation. Um, and at the time, the U.S. Undersecretary of State described that plan as armoring NAFTA. Uh, so it's very explicit that um, you know public military uh, forces of the three countries were going to be used to be the sort of private security forces of global capital. Um, so I think we're seeing uh, more of the same of that. Uh, More of the same with this militarization, the so-called Security and Prosperity Plan for North America, which was the armoring NAFTA follow-up to the economic agreement of NAFTA. It got um, much less attention than NAFTA. But under the media agreement, and, and sometimes that was also sold as a so-called war on drugs that has resulted in a, a large transfer of U.S. military aid and resources and training uh, to Mexico to encourage this uh, militarization. But rather than a war on drugs, it's really been, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the militarization has continued to fuel the violence in Mexico and the drug trafficking. So most of the uh, arms in the hands of Mexican drug traffickers come from the United States, 70 or 80 percent of those arms. Um, uh, either uh, uh, purchased uh, illegally because of the lax gun controls in, in the United States and, and uh, smuggled across the border, uh, or the U.S. military aid that goes into um, uh, arming the, uh, the Mexican military. So that's definitely a, a continuation of that um, same uh, trend. Now, more generally in the Latin American region, I would agree with Brother Cornell that we are seeing um, the, a turn to the right and to populist forms of, of right-wing Governance um, that include this kind of uh, fascination with so-called law and order, uh, which, of course, is a particular kind of order and uh, laws for particular sectors, um, namely global capital. So we see that with Bolsonaro in in Brazil. Uh, But throughout Latin America in recent years, there has been an electoral turn uh, toward the right. So in the early 2000s, there was the so-called pink tide uh, as Latin American uh, countries were returning to electoral democracy. uh, um, And uh, there was more grassroots participation in some of those electoral processes. There was, uh, for 10 or 15 years, uh, a, a wave of elections of left of center governments um, and now we're seeing, uh, in the last few years, a turn back to the right. So in, the, in three large countries in Latin America, in Argentina, Brazil, and Chile, in the last round of, of elections, uh, right-wing governments have come to power, including this extremely militaristic government in Brazil. Now uh, Mexico might be, at least superficially, seemingly a little bit different from that pattern because López Obrador projects himself as being a left or center-left candidate, but he really is just another populist and populist. Populists have no left or right fixed <laughs> sign ideologically. Uh, they say and do uh, for public appearance what uh, they need to do to mobilize masses of people at the same time that they are committed to uh, elite interests. Um, so I would see, unfortunately, um, the government in Mexico is sort of just a new variation of the historic authoritarianism that has characterized the Mexican political system.
0: Rich, what's been the response by the National Indigenous Congress and leadership from the EZLN regarding this increased military budget and a new repackaged, reformulated, and reconstituted larger Mexican military in terms of militarizing the state?
1: Well, the EZLN uh, made it very clear in their announcement surrounding the 25th anniversary of their uprising um, that they uh, don't see anything positive coming from uh, this uh, election uh, in Mexico, and they also uh, made it clear that they intend to continue to fight to fight the Mayan Train Project, to fight all these mega projects of global capital that have been given free rein by uh, governments um, in the region, um, and so I think that the the fight is on. The, uh, the Zapatistas, not a military uh, fight, but a struggle sort of at a different plane as the Zapatistas have simply decided to enact their own autonomous forms of government and ignore the what they call the bad government that they consider to be illegitimate.
0: You talked about NAFTA and your comments about the United States Mexico Canadian Agreement replacing the North American Free Trade Agreement, which apparently will be a boondoggle for the wealthy elite. Apparently the top income tax at the border will will also decrease from thirty to twenty percent. And this new economic zone that is part of the USMCA will be the largest in the world. Your thoughts.
1: Yeah. The um, uh, the new agreement replacing NAFTA is really not that different from NAFTA. It was more political show that Trump needed to pretend that he had renegotiated NAFTA somehow. Uh, but many aspects of it are, uh, as you point out, um, quite negative. Um, and uh, the practice of creating so-called special economic zones uh, has been going on for some time. Um, in a way, it's like carving out a um, uh, a governance-free zone for global capital, and we're seeing this model in many places. Uh, Honduras, for instance, has created uh, these so-called model cities uh, where basically the government abdicates responsibility and local corporations create these enclaves where the corporation is the, uh, the government. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Chiapas, there was an attempt to do something similar in, in creating uh, um, places where uh, those who were displaced by the violence um, in in Chiapas would be sort of regrouped and kind of uh, something reminiscent of the strategic hamlets of the Vietnam War era, a combination of counterinsurgency and sort of isolating populations from their uh, political organized base. Um, So these... Special economic zones or regulation-free zones, uh, and you know NAFTA and the other free trade agreements are extending that model, you know, to entire uh, countries. Um, are just as you say a, a kind of boon to uh, global capital. One of the typical provisions uh, in NAFTA and many other uh, free trade agreements are what are called investor-state clauses, mm-hmm. and that is that if there is a dispute between the investor, the global corporation, and the host state. Um, Then typically it goes to an arbitration uh, panel that is under the supervision of the World Bank uh, Where the dominant model is that global capital prevails And these are secret hearings and no one is allowed to have any input Um, So uh, really this is a structure that is replacing sovereign states uh, with a kind of sovereignty of capital
0: you've mentioned uh, or you've made references to Trump's wall. And I was wondering if you could speak to that in the context of AMLO, because I know um, on December 22nd, right, the Trump administration announced that it would start immediately deporting uh, new uh, Central American asylum seekers to Mexico. But also AMLO administration has agreed to enforce the Trump administration's decree, and also the Mexican Military and National Guard are going to be or have been deployed to carry out the work of um, U.S. uh, imperialism and the regulation of human populations, if you will. Your thoughts on that?
1: Yes, even under the last administration of Enrique Pena Nieto, uh, the U.S. and Mexico had come to the governments had come to an agreement called the Southern Border Plan, uh, in which the Mexican government would essentially be subcontracted to do the repression um, against would-be migrants. Um, already, migrants uh, have to cross all kinds of gauntlets in their attempt to uh, seek a better life, seek economic opportunities that have have um, have. Been been uh, stripped from them by neoliberal policies and by militarism in, uh, throughout the region. Uh, so um, it's a very dangerous journey uh, for migrants. They are preyed on, uh, typically in Mexico, they are preyed on by uh, in, uh, transnational criminal organizations, uh, by Mexican security forces themselves, um, by kind of freelance kidnappers for a ransom, etc. Um, so, the Mexican government sort of entered in, uh, upping the ante and, and helping repress these migrants uh, on behalf of the U.S. government. Uh, now, it's a little bit of a politically awkward position for any Mexican government to be in because since the time of the Mexican Revolution, Mexican governments have had to, at least rhetorically, uh, profess a certain amount of nationalism and willingness to stand up to pressure from the United States. Uh, so, uh, both the past administration and the incoming administration of AMLO are going to have to uh, walk on a tightrope to pretend to be uh, protecting the rights of Mexican nationals, uh, but at the same time uh, be cooperating with the power to the north, uh, with which they really share a lot of interest. Um, now, contrary to uh, a lot of popular opinion in the United States, net migration from Mexico to the United States has been negative in recent years more people, more uh, people of Mexican origin are leaving the United States to go back to Mexico than the reverse flow. Um, But at the same time, we're seeing this increase in the flow of Central Americans uh, uh, traversing Mexico and trying to enter into the United States. Uh, And uh, uh, what's lost in a lot of the hysterical discussion about so-called border security, never mind the fact that there is no security threat from desperate people uh, trying to seek a livelihood, but what's lost is the causes of That migration. Right. Uh, and again, uh, the militarism that goes back to at least the Central American wars and the U.S. massive funding of repressive governments in Central America in the 1980s, um, and the U.S. complicity in the 2009 coup in Honduras. So this pattern continues. And then the long term after effects of the neoliberal so called free trade model. It's free only for corporations, there's no freedom for people uh, to respond to economic signals and and cross borders. But the long-term effect has really uh, created such desperation in Central America that this is what's fueling the uh, stream of of migrants, and uh, the Mexican government has uh, become part of this repressive game on behalf of uh, kind of global capital and and the U.S. Um, The real purpose of these walls and repressive uh, border and migration policies, I think, is not to keep out migrants because, of course, migrants provide low-cost labor for U.S. capital in the United States or in the maquiladoras. But the real um, uh, purpose is to keep these populations um, terrorized and vulnerable so that the labor will continue to be uh, low-cost. So there's a a lot of sort of mythology around the migration issue that's getting so much attention in the U.S.,
0: You're listening to an exclusive one-hour interview with Richard Stoller Schulk, professor of political science at Eastern Michigan University on 25 years later, the National Liberation Zapatista Army, the EZLN's colonial refusal and resistance in Chiapas, Mexico. And now back to the interview. And the position of the National Indigenous Congress and the EZLN uh, regarding this situation and also um, their role, because we covered this issue several weeks ago, and it was reported that indigenous peoples um, along the the route, if you will, from Honduras up to the U.S.-Mexico colonial border, that indigenous peoples provided a reasonable and substantial amount of humanitarian relief.
1: Absolutely. Um, One thing that's interesting is that of the migratory flow from Mexico as well as Central America, a growing percentage of the migrants in uh, recent decades have been indigenous people. Um, and so uh, uh, those were not traditional sending communities, uh, but in, in recent times, again, the neoliberal policies that have uh, so devastated livelihoods and um, environments in indigenous communities uh, play a role in this. So that's uh, one thing that's interesting. But indigenous people also um, don't buy into the repressive logic of states and, and state borders, but rather have been in solidarity with uh, people in need. Um, So even though we we see the headlines, for instance, of the mayor of Tijuana sort of joining in the um, anti-migrant hysteria, uh, really that's not typical. Indigenous people and other non-Indigenous, Mestizo people in in Mexico have been very warm and understanding and empathetic toward uh, people who are fleeing either violence or economic violence and are trying to uh, make a life for themselves. Um, So this is very different, again. From the the picture, the the portrayal that we're uh, seeing coming from the U.S. Uh, the you know Chiapas is the uh, the border state uh, with Central America, with Guatemala, um, and so uh, the the kind of first entry of Central Americans uh, on their journey northward would be through the state of Chiapas. Typically, not through Zapatista territories, but the Zapatista policy has been that. If a group of migrants comes through their territory and is detected, the Zapatistas will uh, stop the group, uh, detain the uh, the smuggler, the the coyote, mm. take the money away from the the smuggler and give it back to the <laughs> to the <laughs> migrants. Provide uh, shelter and food and water to the migrants, and warn the smuggler um, uh, to stop exploiting people in this way. Uh, and that if he does it again, uh, he will be you know sentenced to community labor in the Zapatista territory. So, um, the zapatistas uh, uh, understand the, the need of, of migrants, but they also are, are sympathetic with the need of migrants to be protected from exploitation by smugglers, by the criminal organizations that are preying on them uh, in their journey. And I think that that's true in general of the National Indigenous Congress and of um, other uh, organized indigenous groups. Uh, in Mexico, um, not blaming the migrants, but really blaming the structures of global capital and the states that are complicit in the repression of migrants.
0: In terms of uh, talking about the rise of neo-fascism, the corpocracy that exists in these settler colonial states, and and the fear, and, and for some, the real eminent threat of termination and extinction— are there any growing concerns that the EZLN or even the National Indigenous Congress have expressed in terms of the new AMLO administration?
1: Well, the administration is only a, <laughs> a, a, a few weeks old, so uh, it's a little early to tell. But they, um, certainly the Zapatistas and the CNI um, have not seen uh, any uh, positive signs or anything uh, to, um, uh, any signs of encouragement in the um, uh, the new administration. Um, uh, so they are continuing their efforts to, to organize in, in different ways, so to organize at the grassroots rather than to focus on indigenous peoples and governments. One of the things that AMLO did, uh, he announced he was going to do, is to create a new indigenous uh, institute, uh, but there's been a long history in Mexico of government agencies created supposedly for the protection and benefits of indigenous people, but actually representing simply assimilationist uh, policies and uh, co-optation. Um, so the expectation is that that will continue, so the names of policies and programs and agencies may change, but the, uh, uh, the underlying pattern and the underlying structures continue.
0: I know in the Gregorian uh, calendar sense, uh, a lot of people have identified, uh, you know, January 1st of 2019 is that 25th anniversary. But just in terms of the intergenerational experiences of indigenous peoples, of Mayan peoples um, uh, throughout Mexico and, and in even other, uh, Central America, the significance and uh, of acknowledging What's happened over these past 25 years and, and the um, the questioning of the practices in claiming autonomy as a legitimate form of decolonization, your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, um, about five years ago, the zapatistas launched a new initiative. Um, prior to that time, there was a long stretch after the breakdown of negotiations and the uh, reversal of the San Andres Accords and so forth, where the Zapatistas were not as publicly visible and making a lot of public pronouncements. Um, and so the mainstream media, the corporate press were all saying that the Zapatistas were irrelevant, that they had disappeared, that people had been massively leaving the movement and so forth, just because – The one non-Indigenous visible spokesperson, then Subcommander Marcos, was not making his usual uh, spate of public announcements. Um, But that really uh, was... Uh, just reflective of how non-Indigenous people didn't want to see and hear what was right under their noses, and that is the ongoing intergenerational continuity of Indigenous struggles. Um, so uh, at the end of that long period of what the media had called the silence of the Zapatistas, although actually the Indigenous communities had continued to issue communiques that were ignored by the uh, the mainstream media, at the end of that period, the Zapatistas Um, conducted a silent march throughout the towns of the state of Chiapas, and 40,000 Zapatistas with ski masks and uniforms came out of the jungle without their arms, and marched through the towns just to say, hey, we're still here, we always have been here, and we always will be here. Um, And uh, again, um, uh, after that, the the Zapatistas launched this initiative called the Little School of Freedom, Mm -hmm. uh, the Escolita, in which they opened up their communities Uh, in an unprecedented move. They said anybody who really wants to pay attention and listen and See what's happening in, in Zapatista autonomous communities and see what autonomy is all about, come, uh, spend a week with a Zapatista family. Uh, you'll be assigned a tutor. Uh, you'll have some texts which are narratives of ordinary people, members of the Zapatista communities reflecting on their experience of these 20-odd years uh, of autonomy. Read those texts. Discuss them with your assigned community member. Discuss them with the, your host family in the community. Um, so, um, you know what the uh, the outside world sees as silence really is a, a problem of uh, non-indigenous people uh, needing to sort of clean the wax out of our ears and and uh, you know find another way of listening and perceiving. So, what was striking about the the, the Esquelita was precisely the transmission of collective knowledge and wisdom across the generations of Zapatistas. And it was the first generation, really, of Zapatistas uh, who grew up in the movement, who grew up autonomous, who grew mm-hmm. up free, who were conducting that school and who, for the most part, were serving in the role of sort of uh, tutors of helping the outside world see and and, um, and experience a little bit of what it means to be autonomous. The Zapatistas have never preached their brand of autonomy to anyone else. They've always said everyone should find their own way uh, to struggle in their own territories, in their own conditions and, and circumstances. And so in that sense, everyone can be a Zapatista with a small Z, so to speak, um, by uh, struggling autonomously to be free and against the, uh, the structures of oppression. There are many things that are shared uh, across um, uh, different experiences of oppressed people, uh, but there are also circumstances and peculiarities that are distinct. Uh, with the uh, National Indigenous Congress, the CNI, this has also created a kind of framework where different indigenous communities can both tap into and share the experiences of uh, what they're experiencing together, for example, resistance against the mega projects of global capital, and at the same time uh, claim their local identities, traditions, forms of of resistance, and uh, sort of experiment in an autonomous way.
0: The moment of silence is over. And that was Richard stoller show, professor of political science at Eastern Michigan University, speaking on 25 years later, the National Liberation Zapatista Army, or the EZLN's colonial refusal and resistance in Chiapas, Mexico. And that concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves County Radio. A special thank you to our guest for the hour, Professor Richard stoller Schoep. Professor of Political Science at Eastern Michigan University. A special thank you to our musical guest Aragon Starr, Koopa Aina, and the band Blackfire. American Indian Airwaves County Radio is mixed and mastered in the studio of Burnt Swamp Studio in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time. And the blood never comes clean from the guilty minds, nor the hands the chains. against our fears try not to become what we've endured wearing our souls on the thread the moment of silence is over